Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Brighter Future, Laidlaw & Company's podcast series. I'm Rick Calhoun, CEO of Laidlaw Wealth Management, and I am fortunate again to be joined by David Garrity, Chief Market Strategist for Laidlaw & Company. David, another beautiful spring weekend. I have to ask, what was on the barbecue menu this weekend? Well, Rick, it was uh, indeed a beautiful May weekend, and the menu offered up a mixed grill of sausages, steak, and swordfish along with asparagus, Brussels sprouts, corn on the cob, roasted garlic, and potatoes. Now, this was across three dinners, so it was all good eating. Wow, that sounds fantastic. I am, it's only Monday, and I'm looking forward to Memorial Day weekend already. Um, you know, let, let's jump into it. You know, David, we had, a, we had a tough week last week in the markets and in the economy. You know, on the markets front, we saw the Dow down 2.7%. Uh, the S&P fell 2.3 and the NASDAQ was down 1.2. In fact, it was actually the worst weekly performance the S&P had had in the past nine weeks. Uh, on the economic front, compliments of uh, our friend COVID-19, another nearly 3 million people filed for first-time jobless claims, while retail sales suffered the largest plunge ever on record. And of course, we saw industrial production crater. And as if that wasn't enough, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman threw some stimulus throw a stimulus ball back into the Congress's court. Well, they dropped the pass. Uh, and then tensions are rising again between U.S. and China. So with all that, can you sort of help our listeners maybe sort out what's going on a little bit? Well, as you said, Rick, you know, like the weekend menu last week was mixed indeed. Uh, to our view, on the negative side, the standout item was the warning and admonition from Federal Reserve Chairman Powell last Wednesday that Congress best provide more fiscal relief and that this call was being met with a shrug by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in a statement from McConnell that criticized Powell for not saying when the aid was needed. Yeah, unfortunate words indicating a tone-deaf disengagement from the plight of American voters. You know, with Powell indicating that the U.S. economy is poised to contract by more than 30% on an annualized basis in the second quarter of 2020, you think that McConnell should have the sense to stop playing politics at a time like this. Talk about fiddling while Rome burns. On the positive side, there have been indications that economies overseas have begun the slow pace of reopening after putting in place measures necessary to contain COVID-19, something that's also starting to happen in the US. We are in a, a grindingly slow process but one that is in a positive upward direction from which investors should and are taking heart. Now, looking specifically at how companies are faring, uh, we note the lead article in today's Wall Street Journal that as companies have suspended financial guidance, it has left investors at, at kind of a crossroads. You know, we have 90% of the companies in the S&P 500 that have reported first quarter 2020 results. And, and we're now getting a clearer read on how second quarter 2020 results are, are likely to unfold as analysts have had a better chance to digest company data. You know, here are the 2020 quarterly breakdowns of the comparison to where numbers stood two weeks ago when 55% of uh, the first quarter 2020 results for the S&P 500 were in. You know, obviously for the first quarter, we've seen earnings down 13.8% percent year over year sales were up modestly about 0.7 percent things obviously didn't change there much over the last two weeks but as we look at the second quarter second quarter earnings for the S&P 500 are now forecast to be down year over year by 41.9 percent you know this is is 
five percentage points worse than it was two weeks ago, and it was thought to be a 36.7% decline. In terms of sales, um, it looks like revenues for the second quarter will be now be down 11.3%. Uh, two weeks ago, it had been thought that there'd be a 9.5% decline in the second quarter. Looking out for the third quarter, um, you know, earnings for the third quarter down 23.8% year over year, sales down 5.5%. That number is weakened moderately too. And now looking at the fourth quarter, earnings there thought to be down 11.6% year over year. Sales will be getting back towards flat, but they'll still be down about 1.2%. Again, you know, a little weaker from two weeks ago. Now, putting all this on an annual basis for, for 2020, uh, the S&P 500 EPS is tracking at a rate of about $129 a share. Now, it's important to note that, that this is greater than the trailing 12-year average S&P 500 EPS of $122 a share. As such, the fact that we're tracking at $129 a share uh, over the 10-year uh, earnings power of the S&P 500 at $122 a share, you know, that this indicates that you know, the massive monetary and fiscal response to COVID-19 has succeeded in keeping the earnings power of the companies in the index intact as this relief measures uh, had backstopped aggregate corporate profit margins and liquidity and access to capital and solvency. Now, from a market valuation perspective, you know, this has been clearly significant. If you look at the March 23rd, 2020 low on the S&P of 2237, uh, the S&P was trading at about 17.3 times its trailing 10-year EPS. If we went back to the March 2009 low, the S&P 500 at that time was trading at 10 times its trailing 10-year EPS. You know, now that was a point where investors had given up on America. Uh, clearly, that has not been the case now because clearly we've seen America has come forward and supported uh, the S&P 500. Now, seeing as the market's clearly heavily dependent on monetary and fiscal relief, it's not surprising that the S&P is trading off about 3.1% since April 29th, as the economic data from the March-April 2020 timeframe uh, have come in decidedly negative from COVID, you know, thereby highlighting the need for further relief funding. You know, within the market, we can see that the weakness is concentrated in value as that market segment is down 6.6%, while growth is basically flat, being only off about 0.1%. You know, in our view, uh, the longer the U.S. Senate dithers over the next fiscal relief package, you know, the more the pullback in value is poised to accelerate. So as I said earlier, here we are at the crossroads as the market debates the view on S&P 500 EPS outlook for 2021. If we consider 2010 uh, as being sort of a down, down case, lower bound range, uh, in 2010, U.S. employment was at about 9%. Um, using those numbers, you know, a range of earnings for 2021 of 80 to $90 a share for the S&P would be possible. And that would put the market now valued at 33.7 times earnings for next year. That's a rich valuation by most standards. If we use an upper bound uh, with an upside case, kind of like 2014 when U.S. unemployment stood at 6%, an earnings range of $130 to $140 a share is likely, and the market valuation on that estimate is 21.2 times earnings, which it's above the 15.8 times trailing 10-year average PE multiple for the S&P 500, but a level that's acceptable if viewed in the context 
of a post-COVID global economic recovery. However you look at it, it's still time to put in a call to Senator, Senator McConnell's office and let him know it's time to get on board with moving more fiscal relief forward. <laughs> yeah, send, send your cards and letters, right? Send your cards and letters. Uh, well, I mean, as we start to figure out what's going on, uh, it's nice to see the market moving up. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we saw uh, is traditionally when an economy starts to slip into a recession and we see the stock market fall off like we did, obviously, a couple of months ago, investors are naturally inclined to sell bank stocks. It's kind of what they do, right? And after all, during the last recession in the bear market back in 08, bank stocks were the biggest losers, with some bank stocks unfortunately going to zero. So it's really no surprise that bank stocks have taken a beating uh, down 25% or more year to date, although we're seeing a lot of moving up here in the last few days. All recessions though, and all bear markets are definitely not the same, and this is not 2008. Everything I've read, David, says that the banks are in much better financial position today than they were in 2008. Yet again, they've really taken a bit of a beating here. In fact, we heard uh, Warren Buffett sold a lot of his bank positions, uh, came out uh, uh, late Friday. Is this an opportunity for our investors to buy some really great companies on sale? No, Rick, it's a really great question. And, you know, with the recent first quarter 2020 results of the banking sector showing prudent steps on their part to bolster loan loss reserves and the fact that major financial institutions have been subject to annual stress tests by the Federal Reserve and, and other monetary authorities since the 2009 great financial crisis, I would agree that this is an area for investors to go bargain hunting. You know, we do note that, as you said earlier, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway did pair its stakes in Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, but news came out uh, with their filings that uh, they did increase their holding in PNC Financial. Uh, as noted, PNC Financial recently uh, unloaded a, a sizable portion of its stake in BlackRock Financial. So it's going to be interesting to see how PNC decides to redeploy it the capital raised as a result of that move. And nevertheless, uh, if Warren Buffett's interested in looking at PNC Financial, uh, probably uh, other investors will be likely to follow. Still, you know, the reasons why investors tend to flee from bank stocks at the beginning of a downturn is that, you know, there are possibly major risks that may lurk uh, on the balance sheets of the banks. You know, back in 2009, the risk lay in collateralized debt obligations, or CDOs. Now, since 2009, we've seen the rise of collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, a market that totaled $1.4 trillion in 2019. Now, back in September of last year, the Bank for International Settlements published a paper discussing CLOs and the potential risk they pose, and the report noted that the deteriorating credit quality of CLOs underlying assets, the opacity of indirect exposures, the high concentration of banks' direct holdings, and the uncertain resilience of senior tranches, which depend crucially on the correlation of losses under, among underlying loans, these are all risks that investors can expect to be tested by during the current downturn. Now, with that caveat made clear, it can nevertheless be tempting for investors to consider bank stocks, especially when names such as Wells Fargo are currently sporting dividend yields over 8%. 
Yeah, no doubt. I mean, that it was fascinating to see at one point Wells Fargo's price got down into the the low twenties, and the yield was almost nine percent. So, I agree; those are some interesting uh, interesting names. You know, David, let, let's pivot for a second and talk about a topic that was part of our Laidlaw Five, um, and we believe would have an impact on the twenty twenty markets. Of course, before coronavirus, uh, and that was the presidential election. Um, however, I want to look at it through a completely different lens, and, and that's advertising. As campaigning for the 2020 presidential election heads into its final months, uh, you and I recently discussed that political ad spending could hit an all-time high. Um, this will be a highly partisan political environment that will drive more Americans to donate money to their preferred candidates than possibly in any past election season, which in turn funnels more money into advertising. In fact, this was fascinating to me, total political ad spending in the 2018-2000, excuse me, 2019-2020 cycle is expected to reach $6.89 billion. I had no idea. And I know you believe that creates some investment opportunities for uh, our clients. Uh, please share your insights on that because I thought it was an interesting topic. Yeah, no, Rick, um, you know, as we know, yeah, 2020 is definitely an election year and, and elections have over time only become more expensive. You know, for example, back in June of 2019, Group M, uh, a fairly prominent ad agency, estimated spending for political ads in 2020 would reach $10 billion. And that's an increase of 59% from the 2016 election year when an estimated $6.3 billion was spent. Now, with the onset of COVID-19, the level of digital engagement by the U.S. population has increased substantially. Something seen in the first quarter 2020 results for companies like Alphabet, Facebook, Snap, and other providers. Uh, the net result is the distinct possibility that digital as an advertising channel is set to gain a substantial reallocation of the 2020 election ad budget. Something that will serve to boost the second quarter, 2020, second half 2020 results. For these companies, that we mentioned earlier, namely Alphabet, Facebook, and Snap, as well as Verizon, which is the parent of Yahoo and AOL, Comcast, and AT&T. Among the constituencies likely to prove critical to the 2020 election outcome, millennials will be an area of focus. In this regard, Snap is of particular interest as evidenced by the following. Snapchat, the Snap app, is a hot battleground in the 2020 election. Meme-like videos have helped Trump nearly triple his following to more than 1.5 million in about eight months, far exceeding Joe Biden's audience. But Biden is wising up as he's giving interviews on Snapchat's political news show, Good Luck America. Millennial and Generation Z voters make up 35% of the U.S. electorate, and Snap says their app reaches 75% of that audience every day. Bottom line, investors should consider holding a basket of stocks leveraged to the rise in 2020 election cycle spending, which should support, if not improve, their relative performance over the next six months. That's great. That's very helpful, David. And, and, and I, again, I think that's an interesting area for us to take a look at uh, as we see more and more go online. Um, Dave, I want to ask you on a more macro level, uh, let's call it a big picture question around the potential for a prolonged recession. And I, and I, I hesitate to bring that up only, but I do because Fairman, Chairman Powell brought it up in his speech that he gave last week. Obviously, that would not be good for stocks. As we know, a prolonged recession would depress earnings and the horrible market 
heart and the market multiple <clears throat> bring memories of things like 2009-10 and 2001-2002 where we just saw horrible trading in stocks. But I want to believe the Fed is going to make a big difference here, especially when you consider in the last two months, the Fed's balance sheet has increased from $4.1 trillion to $6.7 trillion. So they added $2.6 billion in two months, which is just incredible. I guess, David, the question is, can the Fed be our savior here, or are we potentially doomed for another 2009-2010 uh, scenario? You know, Rick, as we discussed in our opening response, uh, the Fed has the wherewithal to have a considerable impact in denting the economic blow from COVID-19. But in our view, monetary relief alone will, will prove to be insufficient. The Fed cannot do it alone. Congress needs to act. Otherwise, we could be looking at, you know, 2021 S&P 500 earnings per share of, you know, 80 to $90 a share. That would be down, you know, minus 34% from the 2020 run rate we're seeing right now of about $129 a share. You know, markets can look through earnings declines when the path forward to recovery is clear. But right now, there's still too many unknown unknowns, such as the probability associated with COVID-19 wave two, and perhaps even COVID-19 wave three. As mentioned earlier, Fed Chair Powell sees the U.S. economy shrinking at a minus 30% annual rate in the second quarter of 2020. You know, this is based on a number of near-term economic forecasting models developed by regional Federal Reserve branches. You know, for example, the New York Fed's nowcast model as of last Friday calls for a, a minus 31.1% rate of decline as negative surprises from retail sales and industrial production data mostly offset positive surprises from a regional survey and international trade data. The Atlanta, Georgia Fed's GDP Now model sees a minus 42.8% rate of decline with second quarter 2020 real personal consumption expenditures growth and real gross private domestic investment growth decreasing to minus 43.6% and minus 69.4% respectively. You know, Rick, these are clearly not numbers to write home or, or tell anxious voters about. So hello, Senator McCollin, McConnell, it's, it's America calling. Time to put down your fiddle. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was helpful and, and positive to hear uh, Chairman Powell in 60 Minutes talk about they aren't done yet and they will do what they need to do to step up and support the economy. But it is still, as you said, a little uh, concerning to see some of those numbers. Uh, you know, David, as we come to the end of another great episode, I thought maybe we could talk about a topic that might benefit our listeners as they watch the markets on a daily and, and a weekly basis. Um, and, and that's technical analysis. Now, I'm sure some of the listeners have heard of technical analysis, but just as a backdrop, um, technical analysis is a trading discipline. It's employed to evaluate investments and to identify opportunities by analyzing statistical trends that are really gathered from trading activity, price movements, volume, et cetera. And you'll hear the television pundits talk about things like the 50-day moving average and trading ranges, support, resistance, and even crazy terms like the death cross. I know I was taught, like any good portfolio manager, uses fundamental analysis and technical analysis. And this past week, there's been a lot of talk about the trading range for the S&P 500, uh, as well as the resistance it might hit at 2950. 
Do you follow any technical analysis tools, David, and, and could you share any tricks of the trade with our listeners as they try to figure out uh, the next couple of weeks and months in the market here? Yeah, Rick, as we highlight that the market is at a crossroads as investors consider the prospects for the balance of 2020 and the outlook for 2021, it's helpful to consider insights from a range of disciplines, including technical analysis. But you know, this is also especially true when we're faced with the fact that from the March 23rd, 2020 low, the top five stocks in the S&P 500, you know, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft, uh, these names comprise more than 25% of the stock market's 28% gain off of its low. And now in the past, you know, such concentrated rallies have not lasted. A study of instances where the S&P 500 set a 52-week low and then rallied over the next 35 days showed that in the eight times when the top five stocks provide more than 20% of the game, each time the rally fails. Now, as you noted, you know, technical analysis tends to focus on relatively short-term price trends over five-day, 10-day, and 50-day trading day windows and considers the 200-day moving average to be a key level of support or resistance. For myself, I've looked at longer-term averages, such as the 400-day moving average, as providing the baseline of support for a market upturn or downturn. Now, at the moment, the 400-day level for the S&P 500 stands at 2893, a level just 1% above the March, the May 15th, uh, last Friday's close of 2864. Now, while the 200-day moving average at 29.98 may represent overhead resistance for the market until economic fundamentals become more clear, we're encouraged that the recovery from the March 23rd low has brought the S&P 500 index back to a level we consider the bedrock for the market's recovery from the March 2009 lows. Not in any way a guarantee of smooth sailing, but a sign that the technical damage done by the sell-off from the February 19th, 2020 stock market peak has been to some extent limited. That said, for now, call your senators and go with growth. Absolutely. I, I can't disagree, David. We, we definitely all need to go with growth. There's no doubt about it. Uh, David, again, another fantastic episode. Thank you again for your time. Um, this is going to be a busy week. Uh, we've got uh, some key reports coming out later on this week, and I'm looking forward to getting together with you next week when we can talk about what came out of the, the flash PMIs uh, and also some of the other reports that we'll get later on in the week, like the latest uh, jobless claims, uh, et cetera. So uh, again, another fantastic episode, and we look forward to speaking with you next week on A Brighter Future. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by Laidlaw and Company, together with its affiliates and their employees, Laidlaw, solely for informational purposes. Laidlaw is not providing or undertaking to provide any financial, economic, legal, accounting, tax, or other advice in or by virtue of this podcast. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be, nor should be construed 
construed as the provision of investment advice by Laidlaw to that listener or generally and do not result in any listener being considered a client or customer of Laidlaw. The information statement, comments, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast do not constitute and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or make or consider any investment course of action. Laidlaw does not make any representation or warranty as the accuracy or completeness of any of the information statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, is expressly disclaimed. Laidlaw does not undertake any obligation whatsoever to provide any form of update, amendment, change, or correction to any of the information statements, comments, views, or opinions set forth in this podcast. No part of this podcast may, without Laidlaw's prior written consent, be reproduced, redistributed, published, copied, or duplicated in any form by any means.